0: We, uh, we had uh, two readings today that speak right, in, at least to my ears, uh, where we seem to be by the end of October 2020. Uh, in the first reading, we uh, have moved from Exodus, where we've been a long time. And I've been uh, stressing that Exodus is a great sort of um, parallel uh, story of the church. We've moved to Deuteronomy. But once again, once again, we're at this point of crossing. It's a point, a story that's told again and again. The point of crossing into the promised land, transition. It's Mount Nebo. It's the plains of Moab. It's the end of Moses' tenure as prophetic leader and the rise of Joshua. And again, I remember, I have to remember, I stood there uh, last year in modern-day Jordan taking in what I could of what Moses and the people saw as they transitioned from desert wanderer to people in the land of promise. was very concrete. So it occurred to me that while I am in no way a Moses, um, I have led for a small generation and Trinity Church is preparing for a season of transition. We all face a Jordan at this time. It's looming. And then in the gospel passage, we hear Jesus again in the sharp combative gospel of Matthew um, as it reaches the cross, once again, he is in what I imagine to be the bull ring of Jerusalem, and with those who would skewer and fry him on a question. Um, and this was the last session of challenge by question until he faced the questions of Pilate on the eve of his death. Um, So right up until his final saving work, the question remains, who is Jesus? And why does he do what he does? And what do we need to hear from him? So once again, I see a clear link with the season Trinity Church is about to enter. In a structured way, someone like an archdeacon, who is more friends than foe, is going to come and ask anyone who will answer Uh, over a number of sessions. Who is Trinity Church? What makes you to be you? Why do you do things the way you do? Who will rise to answer that? I hope many, many do. And will your question, your answers stand? So I'd like to look at today's gospel with that sort of sense of connection um, in mind. It's it's intense. Last week, Divya did a great job of showing how profoundly Jesus answered the question of the coin and paying tax to Caesar. That q&a game now continues, but it's no game. It's deadly serious. in today's gospel, Jesus is asked a question which he answers. And, uh, and then he himself asks a question which no one can answer. Jesus was a Jew, and the business of asking and facing questions has a a clear place in life. Perhaps because he had such clear insight into people's hearts, he really answered a question as if it were neutral or innocent. His main purpose or response to a question was often to offer another question, avoiding any trap laid for him and exposing the hypocrisy of those questioning him. Answering a question with a question to reveal the hidden motives or the wrong presuppositions. In postmodern terms, he not only interrogated the question, but he exposed the questioner. Q&A with Jesus was um, an intense business. Sometimes he responded by asking people what they themselves thought about something. And as any counselor knows, often people know the question, the answer to the question they're asking, but just it takes, for some reason, it, it, it's hidden. So he asked people to simply ask answer the question themselves, and he then challenged them to practice the answer that they gave. On other occasion, he referred to the clear meaning of scripture as if to say, it's there, why ask me? And on one occasion, he did not answer the question and simply maintained silence. He was particularly careful and circumspect about revealing his identity in its fullness and what he was really all about. Scholars have described this as the messianic secret. And yet who he was formed the linchpin. It's the fulcrum of all he did and was going to do. So in the previous chapter, we're in Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse 23, Jesus is asked by what authority he cleaned out the temple and what he did there. So having upset the furniture, literally uh, damaged the economy, Jesus replies with a question about John the Baptist. Uh, What authority did he have? and his questioners were not prepared to answer. So he declines to answer their question. Then in chapter 22, where we are today, earlier, he was heard uh, last week with the more pointed and loaded questions. uh, uh, As some of the authorities tried to squeeze this disturber of the peace, there must be a question to shut him up with. The shrewd old men last week sent in the young lions to face Jesus. And in verse 15, the party of the Pharisees send in their apprentices, their young disciples to soften up Jesus, along with some Herodians. And their chosen question, as you heard last week, was about civil tax law with political implications and religious sensitivities. So imagine those bright, eager faces, those wannabes among the Pharisees and the Herodians being sent in to ask this sharp question. And you know the story, round Jesus. And this time there is some blood on the Pharisees and the Herodians. The ring was now open for someone else to ask a question. It's a bit like uh, Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. And uh, who, who wants to step up and ask Jesus a question? Who wants to have a go? So on that same day, from the right wing of the spectrum of Jewish parties and groupings, from the privileged and the somewhat worldwide Sadducees comes a question. Now, these people were familiar with power, and they were, they had enough education and worldly wisdom to spin most issues that came their way, and look down their noses at the fervent faith of the Pharisees and the common people. Their subject of choice was a theological question concerning um, the resurrection and a woman who'd married seven brothers. Jesus gives them a clear answer from the very books of Scripture that they prioritized, that's the Pentateuch, and showed them that their question was wrong in its assumptions. Why? Here it comes. Because they neither knew the power of God nor the Scriptures. Imagine being told that as a professional man of God, and they were men. So we now have some bruised Sadducees as well. Matthew tells us that by this stage the crowd is astonished. This, this was high, uh, high interest viewing. If questions make or break um, these questions could have made or break uh, Jesus. So today the score is now 3 0 to Jesus against all comers. The Pharisees still have some fight in them, so they regroup and they come up for question. And this time, instead of sending in the young guns, they send in a champion, someone described in Greek as a nomokos, a legal expert in the Torah or Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And here comes a big gun with a big question. Does Jesus look worried? I don't think so. The question he comes in is the sort of question that would be asked and was being asked of advanced scholars. And it was discussed, as it were, between professors. Now, the background. By Jesus' time, the law of Moses had been codified and interpreted to the point where it consisted of plus or minus 613 rules. 365 of these were positive, in other words, do this, 248 were negative, don't do this. So with that much detail, I mean, living in Europe gives you a taste of what this is like, you know, trying to interpret what actually is the law is a bit of a fuzzy business. Well, that's where they were. So with that much detail, it would be hard to see the wood for the trees. What was the heart of all this? What could the uh, the clear thinking person focus on? What was primary and and central? What did it all hinge on? So there was no official right answer to this question. It's like a moot question, but it might cause Jesus to dance. It might show his Theological, his legal, his political underwear, and wouldn't that be interesting and give people something to uh, talk about, if not to uh, to knock down? So let's see if we can make Jesus flounder with this question. Whatever the motives of the Pharisees at this point, Jesus seems to pick up the question directly and he addresses it. He answers this one, um, but there's going to be a surprise afterwards. So this is something he is very pleased to speak about. What does God require of us? It's the question. Jesus describes the heart of the law of Moses, the Torah and the prophets with two quotations. The first comes from the Hebrew version of the Masoretic text of the scriptures uh, and forms a confession known as the Shema or Shema. So Deuteronomy 6, 5. And it's again in 11, verse 13 and following. And it also comes up in Numbers 15, 38 and following. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So Jesus answers. It's a verse that uh, we often use in our what used to be our regular first Sunday service. It's... Uh, part of our preparation it's the first commandment of the, for those living as part of god's chosen people in covenant with god and the sort of love here is agape it's that self-giving it's the investment and sacrificing of self for god's benefit it's not the love between friends and family the first and greatest command is to pour out ourselves to the one who is worthy he is worthy because he has created and sustained us and all we enjoy. He has saved us from our lost state, supremely in Jesus Christ, and he has made a new covenant with us in him. He has promised us an eternal destiny and relationship that will not end. He is worthy. Love him of all. He has loved us with all and calls us to respond. So if I were to boil this down to something we could apply, it would be, be the best you can be for God. For God. Live your life, your heart, your soul, your mind life before God at all times as an offering for his pleasure. Paul echoes this as, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's just an echo of this first and primary command. Now this contrast to the general view of most people today, and, and there's a bit of this in church. Don't consider yourself living on an obscure rock, circling a medium-sized star in an otherwise cold, vast universe. But understand yourselves living on the stage of God's provision, at the center of God's view. I'm not the suggesting a flat earth cosmology here, but a theological perspective that puts our life on earth as being the opportunity to love God by giving our best at every opportunity. What we do, what we think, what we allow ourselves to feel, what we consciously decide, each day is an opportunity in this uh, adventure. Loving God means giving our best for his pleasure according to his calling and standards. So this is what Jesus puts forth, and I've, I've been interpreting it, what Jesus puts forth as being primary in the law and the prophets, two-thirds of the Old Testament as we know it. And then he offers a second quote from Leviticus 19. This is Old Testament again, and it's drawn uh, in our text in Matthew from the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the LXX. And the second is like it, you shall love the Lord, you shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Any sincere offering of love to God will overflow into love for those around us. That is an essential connection that Jesus makes. And it's an essential uh, feature of Christianity in the mold of Jesus. St. John puts it very strongly in his first epistle, 1 John 4. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. Ouch. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. It's 1 John 4, 20. So, I I hope that brings some life and clarity and aspect. Now let's apply it. Jesus offered a vertical and a horizontal outworking of what the whole law, the whole instruction, The whole calling of God upon his people through the the Torah and the prophets requires love God, love your neighbor. For the Jew and the Christian, the two belong together, according to Jesus. Good works towards those around us are secondary. And without love, Paul tells us they are nothing. They are hollow clanging gongs. Good works need to be consequential to the heart and the mind and the soul that is rooted in in love for God. The priority is important and it echoes the same arrangement in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, first four commandments are about loving God. This is what the Lord requires. The second uh, group, the six, are the ethical outflowing of that love for the rest of God's people. I've often heard people express their own view of what makes for righteousness. Many people have established their own standards or I think this is what makes for righteousness as if God hasn't told us. So often what Jesus describes as secondary is made to be the complete measure in some expression of the golden rule. I hear it said, well, if you do good to others and avoid doing harm, you are a good righteous person. Well, that's like taking the Ten Commandments and saying, let's just blot out the first four and we'll run with the numbers five to ten. Not the teaching of Jesus. And we haven't got time for it now, but this has huge... Um, as it were, consequence, and and it describes very much what the secular age um, has made of the Christian ethic. Love of people is to follow or flow out of love of God. So I want to suggest how this might take shape just to come into land. Let's get practical. There are so many discussions. People discuss all sorts of things all the time. What would discussions look and sound like for people who first and above all love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind? What's it like to have an individual or a group of people realizing that in a discussion? For the lover of God, the question is always, what would the Lord desire from me here? Has he instructed us on this point? What would please God here? What does God's Word say about this issue at hand? What do we know about the mind and heart of God on this matter? That's the go-to for the God-lover. A discussion between God lovers is an attempt to better discern the heart and the mind of God and not promote their own opinions or to hedge in their own fears or essential concerns. Where is God in this? What is our sense of his mind and his heart? And naturally, any conclusion should also be an expression of love for those affected or concerned. There's a clear example of this that I've often gone to uh, in meetings with uh, involved in prayer. Acts chapter 15, one of the first big decisions of the early church was the church to be exclusively Jewish or was it somehow to allow um, Gentiles in? And in Acts 15, 28, there's this one liner where James, I think reports to the church for it seemed good to the holy spirit and to us that's precious he they first did the work of discerning what was pleasing to the holy spirit and then went on the horizontal uh, to see if the community agreed with us. wonderful so to conclude Jesus had clearly answered the big question. This was a question he didn't dodge or deflect. um, But he then engaged those grouped around him and asked the question. And he asked them an exegetical question, a question of scripture, um, which I'm not going to go into, but you heard it this morning. It's a question from the Psalms. I think it's from Psalm 2 which teases out the identity of the Messiah in relation to uh, King David. He was a descendant of King David, and yet he had the name of God, and David referred to him as my Lord. And thus again, Jesus is bouncing back the question, well, who is the Messiah? Who is Jesus? And there's silence. And the people are amazed. And we read in verse 46b, from that day, no one dared ask him any more question. This Jesus was too hot to handle. But the Q&A would continue. The next person to ask Jesus questions would be Pilate on the eve of his crucifixion. A very different man, but again, who are you? And what is truth anyway? So, meanwhile, here in Trinity Church, scattered throughout the region and the world, I suggest it's time to prepare for questions and to answer them well, each and every one of you. Who is Trinity Church? What makes Trinity Church Trinity Church? What does God do in Trinity Church? How have you personally experience that? What can you point to? The questions are coming, answer well.